0: Welcome to the First Apostolic Church podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. on the afternoon nap that takes place perhaps. Going to be turning to Acts chapter number 23. Acts 23, glad to have everybody, glad to have our guests, good to have uh, Jennifer Pascal with us here tonight, so glad to see her, amen, here, this is just home for her, this is just home for her, amen, and so we're glad, amen, that she's here with us tonight, we actually had opportunity to talk to her a little earlier in the week, so it's good to see her uh, here this evening, Acts chapter 23, I'm going to read the first five verses of that chapter, And uh, then you'll be able to be seated here tonight. The Bible says, And Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. Then said Paul unto him, God shall smite thee. Thou whited wall You use that one the next time you get upset. <laughs> you whited wall. For sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law. They that stood by said, Revilest thou God's high priest? Then said Paul, I wist not, brethren, that he was the high priest for it is written, thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. And that's where I want to conclude there tonight for our scripture reading. Tonight, I want to talk to you on this simple subject pulled really from verse number one. But it is uh, seen throughout, I believe, the first five verses. And that is this a good conscience. I want to talk to you tonight about a good conscience. Amen. Is everybody all right with that? I hope so. That's what. That's all I got good conscience. Amen. Let's talk to the Lord. Thank you, Jesus, tonight. God, for the gathering of your people together here on this Wednesday, Lord, evening. Lord, concentrating our lives again, Lord Jesus, upon your word. God, help us to learn of the scriptures. God, for in them, Lord, we think, Lord Jesus, that we have life, and we indeed do. Lord, for they speak of those things. God, and they speak of you. I pray, Lord, today, God, help our understanding. God, our hearts, Lord Jesus, God. I pray, Lord, the ponderings, Lord Jesus, of our hearts, Lord, concerning your word in the next few moments. We'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. The church, say amen. Amen. You may be seated tonight. The past couple of times that we have left Paul in our lessons, we've kind of left it at a cliffhanger. I know everybody's on the edge of their seat. Whenever we leave and they're wishing I'd go on, we leave him just kind of in the cliffhanger, just waiting what's going to happen next. Somehow I was under that impression. But nevertheless, the last time that we left Paul, he'd just been loosed from his bands. Remember, he had been bound, was on the verge of being scourged, and he had been loosed from his bands. And he was awaiting uh, a hearing, a trial, before the Sanhedrin court, which was a group uh, of Jewish men, a Jewish body of men of about 70 of them, 71 if you include the high priest. And so he was about ready to have this trial or this hearing before uh, the Sanhedrin court. Not only that, we still have his faithful Roman official that's kind of been there as a means of protection for him. And uh, also there just waiting, trying to find out exactly what the accusations were absolutely against Paul. He's heard a few different uh, things that have been spoken, but without any certainty, really what the accusations were so he's still waiting over there in the wing trying to find out with certainty what the accusations are against Paul and it is he that actually sets up this meeting uh, with the Sanhedrin court hoping that they'll find out some information concerning Paul his story and more specific more specifically his accusations now the Sanhedrin whenever you went to stand before this Sanhedrin court it had the ability of being A quite intimidating group. You had there the high priest, of course, and his relatives and family. And you had uh, former high priests, or you might call them uh, honorary high priests, people that had served in that position or capacity before. They were there. You had the scribes that were there. You had other uh, what we might call highfalutin people uh, that were of the sect of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees that were all a part of this seventy. 70 member body of the Sanhedrin and so it could be quite intimidating but the apostle Paul he's seen a lot been through a lot been around these people quite a bit have been incarcerated punished by them talked to them by them and so whenever he comes before the Sanhedrin he just addresses them just kind of a way that a common man would address a common crowd and he just leads off buddy out of the chute with men and brethren Uh, Rather than addressing them by their high social status or anything, he just kind of comes out, hey, guys, you know, hey men and brethren. And though there's a little light that shed on that because the Apostle Paul in his day, whenever he was Saul, very well may have been or may have served on the Sanhedrin court himself. And even if he didn't, he was at least a servant of the Sanhedrin court. So he had interactions with them, felt like he had some common footing, if you will, with them. And so he's not intimidated as another man might be before this group of high, highfalutin, high society governing body of Jews. He's not intimidated. Matter of fact, the Bible says that he earnestly beholds the council, which basically just means, man, he looked at them eye to eye. He just looked at them face uh, to face. And he's confidently looking at them all without, without any intimidation. And not only that, but Paul, as he stands before them, he is convinced, and he makes, he makes uh, sure of this statement, he is convinced that he, Paul, has lived in all good conscience, he says, before God up into this present time. That he has lived before God in all good conscience. Now, there's some things here this evening that I think we need to take in consideration when we talk about a good conscience. A good conscience does not mean that Paul never made a mistake. That does not mean that Paul never made a mistake. Amen. What it means is that he considered his conscience to have been in a good condition. All right. All along the journey. And a good conscience is this. It's a conscience, as our conscience should serve, that tells you what is right and what is wrong in your life. Your conscience really gives a judgment of what's moral or immoral based, though, this is important, based upon what you know, based upon what you know. Your conscience tells you what's right or wrong based upon your knowledge or what you know. And so he says, as far as I know up to this point in time, he said, I've had a good conscience my conscience has steered me in the direction of what was right and wrong based, though, of course, upon what I knew, the knowledge that I had. And so we take that in consideration because uh, even some of these scribes and Pharisees, some of the people, even the Christians that were uh, now joint heirs with Paul, kind of in the same group with Paul. They might have looked back on his past and said, well, you know, Paul was a persecutor of the Christians. Paul was a persecutor of the church. He did all these things, believing, according to the Scripture, Paul did all these things whenever he was Saul, believing that he was protecting the truth of God. He believed he had real purpose to do what he was doing concerning those that were teaching in Jesus' name and those that were speaking about Jesus Christ. He believed he was protecting the truth of God back then. He believed that he he was protecting God himself back then. As a matter of fact, it wasn't until his journey to Damascus on that road where he was struck down off his beast by a light in Acts chapter number 9. It wasn't until then, Brother Zach McGee, that Paul realized that Jesus Christ wasn't a man that was trying to replace his God, but that God had incarnated himself or infleshed himself in the body of a man. And so Paul was operating... By good conscience prior to that moment when he was doing everything he was doing because he thought he was protecting the idea of there only being one God and so he's persecuting because he's seeing this man Jesus Christ coming in everybody saying everything about him almost worshiping him And, and he's saying there's only one God and so based upon what he knew Based upon what he knew in that moment, he was making the decision what was right or wrong. His conscience was based upon what he knew in that moment. But see, what happened on the road to Damascus was this. Knowledge was increased for Paul. Knowledge was increased for Paul. So much so that his conscience would not call the thing that he was doing right, right anymore. Because he had more knowledge than what he had Prior to that moment. And so now he realized that Jesus Christ wasn't just a man trying to replace God. But that he was God incarnate or God in the flesh. And it's then, it's then that he realized to fight against Jesus Christ. Or to fight against Christianity. Or to fight against those that were preaching and teaching Jesus. To fight against that, that was to fight against God. So now his conscience would not allow him to do that. Because that would be wrong. But that's only because, you follow me, that's only because Paul's knowledge had increased. Conscience, what's right and wrong, is only based upon your knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. It's only based upon your knowledge. But as we all, as we all grow from uh, infant on to adulthood, there's things that we will change what we deem was right or wrong as we grow in knowledge in our life. And so Paul says, to my understanding, all along the way, I've operated in good conscience. My conscience has said, this is right, that is wrong, according to whatever knowledge I had at the moment. All right. And so if we let's define conscience, according to the dictionary conscience, the inner sense of what is right or wrong in one's conduct or motives. So Paul says plainly, I was operating in good conscience conscience. Amen. But here's what his, his, his good conscience was doing. It was simply operating without all the knowledge he would have even in the future. See, your conscience, you go stay, you, you just, you're going to have to lean in here tonight, okay? Your conscience does not teach you what is right or wrong. Are you listening to me? It doesn't teach you what is right or wrong. It either approves or disproves what you're going to do based upon the knowledge that you have and our understanding of that knowledge. That's the reason why a little kid that goes to a hot stove may, in their young eight years, put their hand there, because according to their knowledge, they have the slightest idea that if you do that it's going to happen. Good case and point example. The other night, I called my wife, I was upset. I was there at the house with the kids. It was on Monday. She was getting groceries, and it wasn't long. I seen Mariah sitting around with a SpaghettiOs can in her hand with her spoon down in it just eating SpaghettiOs. Now, I thought she might be eating cold SpaghettiOs. I've seen kids do worse things. And I asked her, I said, Mariah, I said, did you put that can in the microwave? She says, well, yeah. I said, you put that can in the microwave? For anybody that don't know, I want to increase your knowledge. You're not supposed to put metal in a microwave. You could possibly cause it not to work and have some other little things that happen. Luckily for us, it still works. But I didn't come down hard on her. You know why? Because that wasn't right. That wasn't wrong to her because based on her knowledge, she didn't know any better. So her conscience was working good for her because it was working according to her knowledge. Now, from that night forward, from that night forward, if she does it again, going to hide all the metal cans in the house what i'm saying as her knowledge increases that the, the the way that her conscience choose what is right or wrong is based upon her knowledge now for first like me i for sure wouldn't put a metal can in the microwave because my knowledge is different from her knowledge now everybody's kind of yeah you, know, you, you you understand it a little bit see knowledge has increased for you already and so when we look at conscience through that way, it approves or it disapproves based upon the knowledge that we have and the understanding of that knowledge. A good case in point, in 1 Corinthians chapter number 8, and you can just turn there, but in 1 Corinthians chapter number 8, there is a pretty lengthy discussion going on about those who, who ate meat that was offered to idols and those who did not eat meat. That was offered to idols. Now, there were some, according to Acts 8, that ate the meat that was offered to idols with a clear conscience. In other words, they didn't see anything wrong with it. The conscience said there's nothing wrong with that. But then there were others that ate the meat that was offered to idols with a guilty conscience. They saw that there was something wrong. With that, they saw as though they were giving honor to an idol by eating the meat that was offered to an idol. Now, the way that two people can approach the exact same circumstance, one think it okay and one think it not okay, will be based upon the knowledge. That they have. All right. Now, this is common. I say this is common knowledge. I don't want to do this is what history and culture and Bible teaches in the Old Testament. It was believed, and it's something that I've even taught you whenever we've had uh, communion services around here. It was believed that whenever a person ate the sacrifice that was offered to an idol or to some pagan god, that they were communing or having fellowship with the idol to whom the sacrifice was for. That's what they believe. Amen. But look, here's what scripture states in 1 Corinthians 8. That chapter I'm speaking that this discussion took place in verse number four. It says, as concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols. He says, this is Paul speaking. He says, we know. He's talking about the knowledge that he has. The knowledge that some that he had shared with has. He says, we know that an idol is nothing in the world. In other words, he says, I know that it's there, wood, stone, wood. He said, but in actuality, he said, it's really nothing. He said, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is none other God but one. Said, no other God but one. So we know that. But not everybody has that understanding. Verse 5, he says, for, For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be God's many and Lord's many, verse 6, but to us, talking about our knowledge, but to us there is but one God, the Father of whom are all things and we in Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ by whom are all things and we by Him. So Paul says, we know there is none other God but one. And so since based upon our knowledge, if we eat meat offered to an idol, he said an idol is nothing. He said, if we eat meat offered up to an idol, an idol is nothing. It's just the same as me having any other meal in my life. Because that idol don't amount to a hill of beans. That idol is nothing. He said, we have fellowshiped with nothing. We've had communion with nothing. No one by eating that meat. He said, because that thing is false. It doesn't exist outside of material form of wood. Or silver. Or gold. It has no existence. It has no power. But look what he says in 1 Corinthians 8, 7. How be it? There is not in every man that knowledge. Every man don't have the same knowledge that we have. There's people out there today that believe in a multiplicity of gods. Multiplicity of gods. That believe their idols are every bit real and existent. And somehow interact with the affairs of their life. They believe that 100%. And he says, "Howbeit, there is not in every man that knowledge. For some, with conscience of the idol, unto this hour, eat it as a thing offered into the idol. In other words, people that believe in all these false things, he says, they're going to eat of that sacrifice, and they're going to believe they're actually communing with that idol, that they're actually fellowshiping with their, that idol. But that's all based upon the knowledge that they have. They don't have the knowledge we got. Are you understanding?" They don't have the knowledge we got. He says, and so their conscience being weak, he speaks of it as weak, is defiled. Amen. So he says, others who don't have the knowledge or don't understand the knowledge, he said, have have a weak conscience. In other words, they feel like a person who's communing with an idol, with another God if they eat that meat that was offered into that thing of wood or stone or silver. They don't have the same knowledge that you and I have. They don't have the same understanding of that knowledge that we have. We both have a good conscience. Because to them, they say it's immoral. To Paul, he says it's no big deal because I understand it's nothing. To them, they say it's immoral because they're still under the idea that you can actually have communion and fellowship with a nothing. <laughs> you follow what I'm saying? And so they both have a good conscience because they're both, their conscience is either approving or disproving according to the knowledge they have. But Paul just calls it weak as compared to theirs because they have greater understanding or greater knowledge. So I kind of put this out here then tonight. So there are a few reasons then why a person might do the things they do and that Somebody else may consider it wrong. Number one, a person may be functioning according to a limited knowledge in comparison with you. When I see that and I'll take that notice, for instance, you could look at a few different episodes. You could look at uh, an episode of, of maybe someone believing that you didn't have to repent in order to have salvation. They've always been taught that their level of knowledge is that you didn't have to. So they weren't going to do that. But whenever they receive knowledge that you need to, that changes the whole dynamics, does it? Some people believe that you can be baptized in Father, Son, and Holy Ghost titles. And that's sufficient for your baptism. And you do that according to your knowledge. You don't know anything different. But then someone comes in and starts describing Matthew 28, 19, how it says the name singular and how Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are not a name but are titles. And that if you break it down grammatically of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Ghost are prepositional phrases that modify the name. And you then go to Acts 4 and 12 and you start taking the whole collective amount of scripture that says neither neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name given among heaven whereby we must be saved. And when you read the context in which that was written, it's speaking about the name of Jesus Christ. And other scripture, I think it's over in uh, Colossians, I could be wrong on that one, that whatsoever we do in word or deed, we do all in the name of. And so whenever we start then pulling back the layers of the onion, because your knowledge has been increased, that changes then your Conscience. That changes what is appropriate and what's inappropriate. That changes what is right and what's wrong. And see, what's, what's interesting about that is that as you come to the Lord and you learn more scripture and you're in here and you hear preaching more and Bible study more, you are incriminating yourself. Because what you used to think was okay after you learn and get greater knowledge you might understand is not okay. And then you have a choice to make. Do I continue doing it that now I know it's not okay? Or do I change my ways? So if someone's doing something wrong, it might be, according to you, it might be that they have a limited knowledge. They have a lesser knowledge about that thing than you do. Yeah, quite possible. Quite possible. Or it may be this. It may be that they're willfully going against their conscience. I know no one here has ever done that but they may willfully be going against their conscience. An anonymous writer, he said this. He said, conscience warns us as a friend before it punishes us as a judge. In other words, it says, your conscience says, no, that's not right, and then if you do it anyway, then it gives you the guilt that you made the wrong choice. The Bible says this in 1 Timothy 1 and verse number 19. Paul, speaking to Timothy, his son, in the gospel, he says, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away, speaking of the conscience, some have put away a good conscience, concerning faith, have made shipwreck. Paul told Timothy, he said, there are some that put away their good conscience. He said, this was right, this was wrong. They put away their conscience concerning the faith. And when they did, when they ignored that, And when they repetitiously repetitiously ignored that, it resulted, and he used this metaphoric language, it resulted in shipwreck. Folks, you cannot continuously deny your conscience telling you something is wrong and do it anyway. Huh? For it not to end belly up somewhere along the way. You might jump over a, a large chasm on a cliff and get by with it a few times. But even the first time you did it, there was something in the back of your mind that says, you know what, I really shouldn't be doing this. But the thrill of the moment has overtaken you now and you just keep doing it. Keep that nagging that's in the back of your mind from doing it and all of a sudden there's Joe at the bottom of the cliff with his head busted open. Shipwreck. Does someone understand what I'm saying here tonight? Not only that, if, if they're doing something wrong according to you, so maybe they're denying their conscience and maybe... As a result of number two, of denying their conscience, they've done that so long that they have now what the Bible calls a seared conscience. A seared conscience. And a seared conscience is this, a conscience that can no longer distinguish between what is right and between what is wrong according to the knowledge they have. Because too many times had they did the thing that was wrong, Whenever they said, it's wrong, it's wrong. They said, I don't care, I'm doing it anyway. Too many times that had taken place till their conscience has become, as the Bible states it, seared, seared. Paul tells Timothy, he tells him about a seared conscience too in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. He says, now the spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith. I think that ties in with the other verse he told them of how some had made shipwreck because they had put away their conscience concerning the faith. He said, some have departed from the faith. Look now, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Here is the reality of it. If we ignore our conscience enough, yes, it will result in shipwreck. But it will also, if we continue in that vein, will result in a seared conscience. A seared conscience. Notice what he says. He says, uh, their conscience seared with a hot iron. Uh, Brother Fred has just showed this, this recently. Anyway, you have something hot. You take a hot iron to the skin or to the body. Many times they call that you cauterize. Right? You cauterize that that uh, that that skin and it's part of the body that becomes calcarized it becomes tough and it's, listen here's the main thing and it's dead to any sensibility it can't feel it can't feel And so if you continue going down the vein of denying your conscience when it's telling you something is wrong, but you do it anyway, if you continue that, it's going to cauterize, if you will, your conscience so that it'll give you no sensibility of what's right, what's wrong what's correct, what's godly, what's upright and what's upside. You won't be able to tell because your conscience will be seared with a hot iron. And when you reach that point, Scripture bears it out. When you reach that point, you then will give yourself. That's the, that, that's the wording of Scripture in 1 Timothy 4 and 1. You'll give yourself to seducing spirits. It's not as though they're overtaking you. It's not as though a doctrine of devils has tricked you or speaking lies have somehow played the hypocrite before you. And God. No, you'll give yourself. You'll willingly say, here I am. Whenever you get to a place that your conscience becomes seared. Now, Ananias, Paul says, I, I've lived in good conscience before you up until this day or to this moment. And whenever Paul says that, Ananias, who at this time was the high priest, had those that were standing by to smite the Apostle Paul's mouth. Now, let me tell you, the King James Version puts it real nice, that they smote his mouth. If you look a little further into the Greek, it's more, it's more abrupt like this. It punched him in the face. Smiting your mouth punched in the face two different things to me, folks. I'm telling you right now. That they just... They just wailed away and hit him in the face because Ananias didn't have the same knowledge as Paul did and he judged Paul's current actions of preaching and teaching Jesus the Christ, the resurrection he was judging all these actions that he had done up to this point in time according to his own knowledge which was deficient which was deficient So he says, you smite that guy over there on the mouth. Paul turns around and he speaks a little roughly to Ananias, the high priest, which we find out that he didn't know was the high priest at this moment in time. But he speaks a little roughly to him and he calls him, you know, a white wall of all things. (laughs) Called him that white wall, basically called him a hypocrite because he's wanting to, to judge Paul by the law. Ananias the high priest right here by having Paul smoke or smacked in the kisser, so to speak. By having him smoke, he has broken Jewish law by doing that. So he's wanting to judge Paul by the law, but he's breaking the law himself. Because according to the Jewish law, the Jewish law stated this, he who strikes the cheek of an Israelite strikes as it were the glory of God. Paul knew that. The high priest ananias would have known that but he's trying to call paul on the carpet concerning the law and here is the high priest breaking the law himself it was then though that he did that but paul spoke roughly said Thy whited wall <laughs> that others that were standing around looked at paul and said Revilest thou god's high priest but paul did not realize that this was the high priest now there are a few different reasons why paul Paul didn't have that knowledge. Paul didn't realize there's a few different reasons why whenever the Roman official had this meeting with the Sanhedrin with Paul from Scripture, it speaks as though in the last verse of chapter number 22, it speaks as though that this this captain had the Sanhedrin come to where Paul was which was the four of Antonia, that they came there rather than Paul going to the regular setting of the Sanhedrin. Because in the regular setting of the Sanhedrin, the high priest had a certain spot that he normally sat, and he was in all of his garb of high priesthood and such, and everybody knew who sat in that spot was the high priest, Paul was familiar with that, but you take them out of that setting. We have seventy people in an area that they're normally not in. Amen. Paul may have not been able to distinguish among them who the high priest was at that moment in time, not being in the normal setting. Not only that, you'll remember Paul asking three times for the thorn to be removed from his flesh, and it wasn't necessarily it wasn't a literal thorn, but it was something in Paul's body, something that he had that was uh, limiting to him. Uh, many people believe that perhaps Paul's thorn in his flesh, and there's scripture that, that you can look at and, and speculate, has and speculated that it could have been Paul's eyesight. And the Bible even tells us in Galatians six and eleven, when he wrote to the Galatians, he says, Ye see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand? Now, some people want to think that's the length of the letter. Well, in reality, Galatians isn't that long. But Paul, that meaning that the characters of his writing were quite large because he didn't have really good eyesight to be able to see in the first place. I, I can stand with it. I don't have contacts, and I can't see the big E on the back of the wall. So I understand. See what large letters I write with if I didn't have contacts. <laughs> and it wasn't for you. It was for me. He also said, the Bible says in Galatians 4.15, he says, Where is then the blessedness he spake of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, ye would have plucked out your own eyes and have given to me. All these relating to the fact that possibly, speculating, that maybe Paul's thorn in the flesh, the thing that he asked God for help of that was never removed, was difficulty in seeing. And if that was the case, if he was in a room and he had difficulty seeing, He might not have been able to know who in the world said that. He just heard somebody say it. You white wall. Maybe that's what we should call this tonight. You white wall. (laughs) That been good? Subtitle. (laughs) Lastly, remember, Paul's been traveling away from Jerusalem for some time. For about 20 years, he's been on these missionary escapades. He's been here, there, and yonder. And so he comes back, and it's quite possible he may have not known at that exact moment who was serving in the row of price, of high priesthood since he's been gone here and about for such a long time. Regardless, so that's just food for thought. I don't have no direct answer for you. But regardless, the reason he admits, I didn't know, I didn't know he was the high priest. And then he quotes scripture. He quotes scripture. He says, thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. Now, Ananias, the high priest, history, not biblical history, but history, real history tells us that he was a horrific man. His character was less than, than what should be, as you would suspect, for a high priest. He was known for stealing ties from the house of God and uh, stealing it from others to whom the uses were really intended for. So he's not a well-spoken, uh, well-thought-of character here. But Paul says, thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. What Paul is doing right here. Now, listen to me in this whole little scenario. Paul is admitting I made a mistake. Matter of fact, I made a mistake according to my new knowledge, because now I know who this guy is, the high priest. Before that, he didn't know it. He was operating, I guess, out of his conscience. But increased knowledge, conscience has more to go off of. He says, "I made, I made a mistake." Now, according to this new knowledge I have, and so he says that thou shalt not speak of the ruler of thy people. In other words, I'm going to then, since I shouldn't have done that, I'll give honor, I'll give honor to the office of a high priesthood, in spite of whatever type of character this man may be. That's 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 an important thing to think of in church life, government life, all around, folks. You give honor to you give honor to an office, not necessarily a person. I give honor to the office of the president of the United States. You might hate his guts, but you still must honor the office. You might hate my guts, but you still got to honor the office of a pastor. So we give honor to the office, he says, regardless of the personal character. Now, now watch this. David in the Old Testament operated very similar to what the Apostle Paul did here in the New Testament. Amen. Because the Bible says that he and some of his men were in a cave. David had already been attempted. He had, Saul had already attempted to take David's life on several occasions. But David and his men are in the cave. And they're back in there. Saul's looking for them. Saul is close. As a matter of fact, the Bible says he goes into the cave and he covers his feet. Which basically, the modern, day techn- modern language is this. He had to use the restroom. That's what that means. Whenever he said he covered his feet, he had to use the restroom. And so he goes in there. He's in in a very vulnerable spot. Here's David and his men. Some of his men are saying, the Lord has just delivered your adversary into your hands. But Saul at this time still king, The Lord's anointed. He said they would deliver the adversary into your hands. But you know what? David says, no, we we can't do that. We're not going to do that. Look at 1 Samuel 24 and verse 10. He said, behold, this day thine eyes have seen how the Lord had delivered thee. He's talking to Saul into my hand in the cave. And some bade me kill thee, but mine eye spared thee. And I said, I will not put forth mine hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. What was he saying? He's saying he's king. I'm going to honor the office regardless he's tried to kill me honor the office regardless he has tried to kill me we got to watch ourselves not to start throwing dirt at employers cuz regardless maybe they're the worst person you ever worked for in your life they're still your employer. They're still your boss. At the end of the week, their company's still on the check that you get. Honor. Honor. Honor does not mean you have, and I remember this so, so well. Years ago, we was evangelizing. We was with a pastor. He was talking about a young lady that was in his church, and she was giving her mother and father some real static. And I'll never forget these words, Sister McGee, and you might remember them as well. He says, I was speaking to her, and I told her, I said, dear, said, the Bible says you got to honor your parents. He says, I understand right now that you all's interaction is horrific. And, and it was legitimately being mistreated, he says. But that doesn't take away from the fact they are your parents and their office deserves honor. Their office deserves honor. Now, here's 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 the thing, this conscience idea, because this is what we're at. In the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, the word for conscience was usually translated heart. In the Old Testament the conscience was so much a core of the human soul that the Hebrews in the Hebrews mind they didn't draw a distinction between the conscience and the rest of the inner person they just called it the heart now watch me David was in that that cave he did not kill Saul but the Bible says he cut off the skirt of Saul's garment While they were in that cave. But even in the moment that he did that. Afterward the Bible says. His heart. smote him. Says it there. 1 Samuel 24 and verse 5. And it came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him. Because he cut off Saul's skirt. What are you saying? His heart. Conscience. He did it and then his conscience said. You shouldn't have done that. Why? Because still regardless. That was God's anointed for that time. That was God's anointing for that time. And let's go a step further. Let's go a step further. A person's garment, a person's robe, an Old Testament, not only did it give a distinguishing of the gender, but it also gave the identification of that person's role in life and their office. It gave them their identity. It gave them their identity. As a matter of fact, the hem or the skirt of the garment was nothing more but a symbolic extension of the owner, or more specifically, the owner's rake and the owner's authority. So listen to me. So to mar the garment, was to mar a man's identity. Are you following me? Was to mar a man's identity. So David realized, David realized, it wasn't, I cut off the skirt of his garment. I am affecting his identity before the men out there, because this represents who he is by his garment. He's known by his gender, by his garment. That's where we get into our dress. He's known by his gender, by his garment, and also his means of life. That he is a king is known by his garment. He said, so if I start messing around with his garment, I am essence messing around with his identity. And it's not my responsibility to mar his identity in the eyes of all of the people. Saul, so he'll take care of that on his own. What I'm saying is the proof and the pudding will come out. You can somehow put a facade out there and be somebody that you're really not as long as you want to. Sooner or later it's going to come out. But just because, let's say Brother Mason has something going on and he's acting like that, that doesn't mean I take authority and just let that just start marring his image in the eyes of you all. His lifestyle is going to take care of that all of its own. I don't have to help it out. Yeah. I don't have to help it out. So David says, "I sh- my heart smote me, my conscience smote me. I should not have done that." Saul's life is going to take care of that itself. Not only that, ultimately, God is going to have a hand in rocking and rolling that world. And so here's Paul. He operated in a good conscience. Now he has increased knowledge. Concerning that that man was the high priest. So he says, I shouldn't have done that. He owned his mistake. That's another good truth that we should learn from this. You need to own your mistake. And here's where that goes. Paul operated in good conscience. But if he continued to speak then horribly toward that high priest. After learning that he was the high priest. What would have he been doing? Denying his conscience. If you continue to do it, he'd been denying. You've been denying that what he was doing was wrong when now he knew that it was wrong. So Paul presents a very good lesson for us all. We must follow, listen to me, we must follow the conviction of our conscience after we've gained knowledge about something that we used to consider right. But by knowledge now, we know was wrong. Old Testament even bears this out. Leviticus 4 and verse 13. A few different times in Leviticus 4, this bears it out. Bears it out for the priest, bears it out for the whole congregation, so on and so forth. Read Leviticus 4 if you want to know. If the whole congregation of Israel sin through ignorance and the thing be hid from the eyes of the assembly, And they have done something against any of the commandments of the Lord concerning things which should not be done and are guilty. Verse 14. So they've sinned through ignorance. They did something incorrect and wrong that they didn't know was wrong or incorrect. They ignorantly sinned. Verse 14. When the sin which they have sinned against it is known. We're not ignorant now. We understand what we did was wrong. Then the congregation shall offer a young bullock for the sin and bring him before the tabernacle of the congregation. What's he doing? He's making amends for what he did wrong that he now has knowledge of. Someone just shake their head up and down. So the Bible calls sins that were committed without our knowledge, without knowing that they were wrong, it calls them sins Of ignorance, sins of ignorance. In other words, although a person, according to their conscience, good conscience, their limited knowledge, may have done it, felt like it was okay, but whenever they received more knowledge and understood it was not okay, it didn't mean we just go on. It meant it must be taken care of. Whenever I came to the Lord and the Lord enlightened my mind, there's all kinds of things in my life I realized that I did in my past that was wrong. That was against God. But that did not mean I didn't go to God for repentance for those things. No, it meant now that I had knowledge concerning that, I made amends through repentance for those things and tried not to have them reoccur in my future. Someone say amen. Amen, 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 amen. They were offering the offering. They were offering the offering of trespass because of what they had done. So the next time that they did the same thing, they would have to be doing the sin with the knowledge. They'd have to be doing the sin knowingly. They knew very well what they were doing were wrong, but they were doing it anyway. That's not a sin of ignorance. I'll call it this. That's a sin of knowledge. That's a sin of knowledge. And so against their better judgment, against even the judgment of this increased renewed conscience now, telling them it's wrong, they do it anyway. And here's what the Bible says, New Testament Scripture. The Bible says in 2 Peter 2 and verse 20, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome." The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness. It had been better they didn't have the knowledge. Then after they had known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. Because see what's happening is this. If a person knows what is good and then they retract out of that and do it anyway knowing that it's not good. Honey, you're doing that with the knowledge that it's wrong. He's saying it'd been better that you never had the knowledge so you could just live in ignorance. Because we are, to a great degree, required by, we are required. We are, what's the word I'm looking for? We are held accountable for what we know. Case in point. Case in point with Mariah. Didn't rant and rave all over because she didn't know that you weren't supposed to put a metal can in the microwave. But now she's accountable for what she knows. Hmm, someone say, hmm. So whenever, whenever we have increased knowledge by the word of God, and then we go against that, we're doing that knowingly. We're doing that with our eyes open. The Bible says in verse then number 22, but it is happening to them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again. And the sow that washed to her wallowing in the mire So I get increased knowledge by the word of God. I get increased knowledge by the gift of the Holy Ghost, which John 14 says teaches me all things. It supplied my conscience with more knowledge to help determine what's moral, immoral, what's right, what's wrong. hmm, Concerning my actions. And so if I leave all those truths, if I leave all that and I start practicing them things that are contrary to God, that now I know. And to his word, which now I have better understanding and knowledge of. Now I'm doing all these things against my good conscience. I'm doing all these things against my good conscience. And when you do that, it'll set people, us, anybody up for shipwreck. And the possibility, if you continue therein, please hear me. I know this is strong tonight. But it'll set you up for a seared conscience. A good conscience, yeah, one, it judges the actions: what's right, what's wrong, according to knowledge. But as knowledge increases in truth, as knowledge increases in the wholesomeness of the matter of God and God His of His the, the God of the Word, our capacity then to judge right and wrong increases. Mm-hmm. Someone's just saying, mm-hmm. and then there's this other thing: if you've been filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Paul says in Romans 9.1, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. He says, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. Now, Here's something. Here's something. There is, so, there is a side that if you had the baptism of the Holy Ghost, that your conscience can excel beyond the natural level of just what you know according to your knowledge of right and wrong. Because the Holy Ghost can impress things on your conscience. That you're about ready to do and the Holy Ghost impress on your conscience? No. But it wasn't according to your knowledge. It was according to his knowledge. The knowledge of the Spirit. That's the reason why if you've been born again of the water and the Spirit, you need to be sensitive to the Holy Ghost you have because it might impress things on you that your natural conscience can't even impress upon you. And you need to pay attention to what the Holy Ghost is saying. He said, there's times, he said, boys, i tell you what. He said, there's times that my conscience bears witness in the Holy Ghost. He says, there's times that the Holy Ghost came and it gave me direction even whenever I didn't have knowledge about what was right or wrong. And let me tell you, there's nothing any, <laughs> there's nothing any worse than... Rejecting when the Holy Ghost is telling you. Your conscience is a part of your natural man, but there's nothing worse than you rejecting what the Spirit is telling you when something is right or something is wrong. If you can stand with me here tonight, Paul says, I know I extrapolated a lot out of five verses, but he says, I have a good conscience. But shown, admitting that he was wrong, quoting the scripture that he did after he said what he said against the high priest goes to show that his increased knowledge caused him to react differently than prior to. Also shows us that he was respectful of the office, however the man was. And for David, that came down to because David says, I, I don't have the right, my conscience won't allow me to mar the image of another. My conscience won't allow me to do that. So folks, as we sat here for the past 45 minutes, here's the thing, your conscience level of what's right and wrong, there's an increase now accountability on your life because of what you've just heard in the past 45 minutes. Oh, Brother McGee, no, honest to God. I'm telling you the truth. I lie not. <laughs> like the possible. I lie not. So we need to operate with a good conscience. To understand it's constantly, it's constantly gaining the ability to decipher by the knowledge that we learn. And that the spirit, when you receive the spirit of the Holy Ghost and it makes impressions, it trumps all. It trumps all. If anybody's upset with me tonight, you can just call me a white wall as you leave this building. (laughs) Oh, let's pray here tonight that the Lord would help us. Father, I come to you here this evening. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter